Welcome to Your Social Anxiety Bestie, the show about showing up, even when we're scared. I'm Sadie, and I'm here to share the truth about what it's like to live with social anxiety disorder. I was diagnosed with severe social anxiety and perfectionism in 2018, and since then I've been nerding out on all things anxiety and healing. My goal is to help you feel less alone and give you tips to face your own social fears, wherever you are on your journey. I hope today's episode reminds you that even though social anxiety is lonely, you are not alone. Let's jump in. Hey guys, I have a very special episode to share with you today. A few weeks ago, one of the social anxiety experts I follow sent out an email inviting her community to a no-holding-back, audio-only Q&A on Zoom on social anxiety topics that we might be too embarrassed to ask anywhere else. So questions like, how can I get a promotion at work if I feel too anxious to speak up or take on a leadership role? And how does my race and cultural background factor into my experience of social anxiety? And how does social anxiety impact intimacy and sex? And is my social anxiety part of my personality or is it something that's a problem or disorder that I need to get help with? The question on intimacy and sex in particular caught my eye when I saw the email because this is a topic I've wanted to talk to you about basically since I started the podcast, but I haven't been sure how to have that conversation. Here's why it's tricky. I'm not a doctor or a therapist. The episodes that I do are based on my own personal experience. Of social anxiety. So to talk to you about the impact social anxiety can have on sex, I don't really know how to do that without getting potentially TMI about my own sex life. And I haven't really found the right balance. I don't know how open I'm comfortable being. And, you know, the social anxiety side of my brain is like, that's so inappropriate. Uh, Just shush. So anyway, I haven't done that yet. (laughs) Anyway, but Dr. Tanessa Franks, who you will hear, she opened the door to the conversation on this topic. And you'll actually hear her read out a question that I put in her chat about social anxiety and sexual identity, because it's something that I'm curious about. So her talk also touches on other very important social anxiety topics, like her insights on race and cultural background are fascinating and so educational and helpful. And she was generous enough to say yes when I asked her if I could air the recording of her talk on the podcast to share with you, my lovely listeners. So that's where we are today. Before I pass you over to Dr. Franks, I'll just set the stage for you by telling you a bit about her. Tanessa Franks received her PhD in psychology at the University of Virginia and has worked in a range of mental health care settings, including VA hospitals private practice, and academic institutions. As a self-defined shy girl, she realized a strong passion for helping people who struggle with worrying too much about what other people think and started Bashful and Bright in 2019 with this mission at the forefront. She creates videos, conducts group psychotherapy, and teaches a comprehensive online course to help women and men improve their social anxiety so they can start showing up speaking up, and engaging in social interactions in a way that feels good. You can learn more about her work at bashfulandbright.com or reach her directly at drfranks at bashfulandbright.com. 
Um, those links will be in the show notes as well. So you can just check that out. Okay, with all that said, let's jump in. All right, so we are live. Okay, so before I jump into these questions, I want to just say that as I talk about social anxiety today, um, and really whenever I talk about it, I want you to know that there are two main elements to social anxiety. Uh, there's what you can consider the core fear of being negatively judged, fear of being embarrassed, rejected, scrutinized, criticized. That's sort of what most of us think about when we think about social anxiety. That's that core fear. But then there's also this core belief that you are deficient in some way. And this belief about deficiency is often related to some internalized standards of perfectionism. Okay, so the, there are these standards of perfectionism, and you as someone who struggles with social anxiety are often feeling deficient uh, because you're feeling like you're not living up to those standards, and then that in turn leads to feelings of shame. And this shame piece is actually something that's being talked about more in the literature around social anxiety, um, this idea that it really is a core part of the experience of social anxiety. So I want you to keep those two things in mind. Um, as I go through these questions today. So the core fear about being judged and then these feelings of, uh, these beliefs about deficiency, which result in shame. And if you do happen to put something in the chat, um, I can't see it, I don't think as I go, but I will check for it. I wanna think about it every now and then. So, um, so feel free to type there if you'd like. Um, okay, so we have those two, two pieces and any and everybody can have this to a certain extent, right? Just by nature of being a human being. Um, but it crosses the line and becomes more of a problem when it's affecting your daily functioning. So one of the questions someone wrote in, if we get to it, was just about wanting some more clarity around like, how do I know if this is really a problem? And so I'll get to that. But a lot of that comes down to like, how much is this affecting your day-to-day -day life and your goals for yourself, your job, your relationships with other people, your hobbies, right? Like the things that you like to do for fun. How much are those fears about being judged and those feelings of shame because you're not living up to certain standards or feeling like you're deficient in some way, how much is that the reason why you're not where you are or where you'd like to be, okay? So I want you to keep those things in mind. Now, so let's hop into some of the questions. So the first question I want to answer was someone sent a note to ask about how they could go about getting a promotion at work if they feel too anxious to speak up more in meetings and to take on important projects at work, to really take on a leadership role at work. Okay, so one thing that I want to say here is that I truly don't like to be an alarmist. Like I don't wanna be one of these people like, oh my gosh, this is awful, do something. But I do want to be a realist. And one issue that I have when it comes to social anxiety is that people minimize the severity and the importance of it too much, right? I'm sure if you struggle in this area, you've probably come across people who are like, oh, you know, you're just a little shy or something you'll grow out of, or, you know, that, that just means you're afraid of public speaking. And it's like, no, no, this, it can't be that, that those are versions of social anxiety to some extent. But for a lot of people, a lot of the people who I talk to, this is a significant problem. And so the consequences should not be taken lightly. So here are a few 
just a few research findings for people with social anxiety when it comes to your work life. So research has found that people with social anxiety are likely to get lower grades in school. So if we're thinking about academic performance um, early on, less likely to get promoted at work and likely to earn less money compared to people uh, without social anxiety. And then there are other studies who find that they're more likely to be uh, like on, you know, uh, welfare or government supported income, things, things of that nature. Um, so, so this is real. So if you're to the person that wrote in and to anyone else who might be experiencing this, if you're already feeling like your work performance is impaired, don't panic, but I want you to pay attention. Okay. And it sounds like you already are thinking about this. So what I would encourage as a starting point is to first do a little introspection. So I would sit down with pen and paper or do a, a voice memo in your phone, whatever works for you, but some kind of way of like working through your thoughts around this issue in a structured way. And really your goal with this is to take inventory of where you are now and where you want to be. Okay. So I'm someone who loves to get organized first as a way of tackling a problem uh, to really find out what you're dealing with. So, so my comp comments sort of come from that place. So some things I want you to explore either by writing it out or talking it out. You're not sharing this with anyone. This is, like I said, it could be a voice memo in your phone, but some things that you want to explore are number one, what is my current job and my current role at work? Okay. So that's an easy one. You can probably do that in a few seconds. Like what is it that you currently do and what does that job require? Like what are the specific tasks? Do you have to do, is it like a retail job where you're interacting and doing customer service? Whatever it is, really talk out or write out what your current job requires, okay? Then I want you to explore what are the specific tasks at your current job that you struggle with the most. And when I say struggle, like when are you feeling most anxious? When are you getting that, those butterflies in your stomach, that tightness in your chest, when are you feeling that urge to avoid, to call out of work, to make up an excuse? Like, what are the things that really trigger your anxiety? You want to talk through that. And then you want to explore what is your goal with respect to work? Like, what type of job or role do you really want? What is it that you feel deep in your heart you're qualified for? Like, what are you, what are you feeling drawn to or driven to do? And then what are the specific tasks that that job would require? Like this job in your head that you're like, man, I know I'm qualified for that. If only the social anxiety weren't blocking my way, I know I could kill it on that job. I want you to really explore what, not just what the job would be, like what the title would be, but what are the specific tasks that you feel you would need to be proficient in to do that job or to get that job? So really explore that as, as uh, thoroughly as you can. And then I want you to talk or write through what's the gap between where I am now and where I want to be. So what are those tasks on that list for your dream job, so to speak? And it may not even be your dream job, but just like where you're headed. What's that next thing that you're aiming for? Um, what, where does the gap, where are the, the things that are blocking you from getting there? Um, so to the person that asked me that question, that promotion that you're wanting Where's, what are the specific things that are in that space between where you are now and where you're trying to get? Um, and so then once you're clear about that, um, 
Then I want you to, so again, going back to me being a realist, if you struggle with social anxiety, that's at the point where it prevents you from uh, taking on those bigger projects at work, we already know that something's going to have to change, right? So unfortunately, there's no message that I can give you of like, it's all going to be okay, don't worry. Something will have to change, but, but there is a way to do this. So once you're clear about the gap between where you are and where you want to be, this is where the, the work begins. So you can either A, get a professional to help you take those steps to fill in that gap, like you know someone to help you navigate what it would mean to learn how to do whatever those skills are. Um, oh, you can also work on your own. Like self-help is real. It can work, but you just have to do the work. Um, so if you know that giving presentations is a part of the work role that you desire, you may want to come up with a step-by-step -step plan to challenge yourself, like in small steps until you get more comfortable with speaking up at work. So, so real quick, what that may mean, what that may look like for you is maybe your first challenge for yourself is just commit to asking a question at a work meeting. Like, right, maybe right now you're totally silent at those work meetings. Like you don't say anything. Um, so now next week, maybe you say, I'm going to um, just ask a question. And then from there, because often asking questions is easier than just making statements. So asking a question might be sort of a, a nice baby step to start with. And then from there, maybe you challenge yourself to state an opinion or, or state a belief about something in your work meetings. Um, maybe from there, you challenge yourself to talk one-on-one -on -one with your boss more, like to initiate conversations with your boss more often. Um, and then from maybe from there, you commit to leading a small part of a meeting, like not like directing an entire meeting, but maybe there's some small project you could take on or a certain uh, part of the meeting schedule that you could take on, whatever that might look like for you. And then you work your way up to whatever that ultimate goal is, whether that's leading the meeting, like I said, or initiating a project, uh, whatever it is, you've taken that big task and broken it down into small steps so that you can master a step and kind of gain the confidence that comes as a result of that and then work your way up. Um, or maybe it means you sign up for Toastmasters. Um, a lot of people have had success, really. If, if, you're, if you find that your social anxiety really manifests itself when it comes to public speaking um, and communicating, um, I've never personally tried Toastmasters, but I have heard a lot of people say they've had success with that. So what I want to say here is that all jobs will be different, right? But the point here is that you don't stay stuck in a place of discontent and feeling like a failure because the, the consequences, like I told you, like those are, those are research findings for people with social anxiety, the consequences are there. And I don't know, coming out of this pandemic, I'm like, we all gotta go after our, our happiness with a sense of urgency, right? Like it's always been that way, but I don't know, the, the events of the last year and a half are definitely just um, a moment to realize that like, this is all we got, like you get this life and let's make the most of it. So again, don't wanna be an alarmist, but I want you to go after your, happiness, your life satisfaction with a sense of urgency. So don't just let the years go by when you already know that you want more. Okay. So just in conclusion with that, get clear about where you are now and what you want when it comes to your job. And then make a list of just a brainstorm of all the different ways that you can fill in that gap. Okay. So that was question number one. Um, now, so I want to Move on to another question here. Let's see, what do I want to tackle next? Um, next, let's talk about 
Okay, so how, another question that I got, this is one that I put in the email, uh, was how does my race and cultural background factor into my experience of social anxiety? I'm scared that other people judge me because of who I am. So I like this question. Um, so as a black woman, I'm a black woman and I, you know, I strongly identify with my race, my culture. It's, it's a salient characteristic for me that informs my daily life experiences. So this is some, this is a topic that I, um, that I think about a lot. And really the comments that I wanna make here can apply to any aspect of your identity that is known to be marginalized on a larger scale in some way. So for example, if you identify as LGBTQ+, if you have a physical disability, if you're a woman, if you live in the US, but maybe you were born outside of the US, um, if you live in an English speaking country, uh, but English is not your native language, maybe you have an accent, if you have autism or any other emotional or behavioral disorder that manifests in a way that may cause other people to judge you. Um, so this is what I want to, this can apply to you. Okay, so here's the deal. Cognitive behavioral therapies are the type of therapy for treating social anxiety that has the widest research showing that it's effective. It doesn't by any means mean that it's the only treatment and it certainly doesn't mean that it will work for every single person, right? But it's definitely known as sort of the gold standard when it comes to treating social anxiety uh, disorder as well as other anxiety disorders. And a critical part of the CBT process, the cognitive behavioral therapy process, is helping people learn how to identify when their thoughts about a situation or their expectations about how a situation will turn out, right? Those thoughts of like, oh my God, I'm gonna go to this party. Everybody there has this kind of degree and I only have this one and they're gonna think I'm an idiot. I'm not gonna have anything intelligent to contribute. All of those thoughts, right? Thoughts about how things have gone in the past and how they're gonna go in the future. A lot of CBT is about helping you identify when your thoughts and your assumptions are not aligned with the real deal, like what's at the actual data that you have, right? So like, how do you know that everyone at the party is going to feel this way? What, what sort of data do you have that would support that, right? That whole kind of process, that's a big part of CBT. But if you are a part of one of these groups that I talked about, if you're queer, if you're black, Hispanic, you use a wheelchair or you're a woman that's working in an area where there are mostly men, any of those identity uh, factors that I just talk about, talked about, you are likely to be judged in some situations and in some scenarios, right? We know this to be true. And so while you do have times when your social anxiety causes you to misread situations, you do also likely experience judgment at times. Um, so what I would say here is if you're working with a therapist, this has to be taken into account, right? It's not something that should be overlooked or like, oh, this is all in your head and you're constantly assuming that people are judging you, but they're really not. No, sometimes people will be judging you. And, and by the way, this goes for people who may not identify with any of those diversity factors that I, that I mentioned. People do judge you, right? It is not all in your head. And so it becomes important that you practice 
depersonalizing the judgment. Like that's often something that therapists will work with their clients on. And that takes time and practice, but that is typically the goal. So it's practicing how you can see other people's judgment as a reflection of their own shortcomings, their own bias, as opposed to something that's in any way meaningful or truthful about you. Okay, so I'll say that again. So the goal is to depersonalize the judgment. I just want to say it takes time and practice, but it is a worthy process so that you're not stuck in this place of, but people really are judging me. At some point, it's about, okay, but what, what does that mean? What is the meaning that I'm attaching to that? And how can I distance myself from that in a way such that it's not always emotionally harmful, that it doesn't send me into like an emotional spiral, for example. Okay. Um, so that is what I would say about that. And feel free for any of these, like um, especially if the person who asked this question listens to this and you have follow-up, um, feel free to email me about any follow-up questions. I'm happy to dive into any of these more. So I'm gonna take a quick sip of water and then we'll keep going. So let's see, let's talk about, all right, big topic, social anxiety and intimacy and sex. So specifically, how does social anxiety impact intimacy and sex? Okay, so um, a couple of kind of background comments around this. Um, if you have social anxiety, if you struggle with social anxiety, the situations that trigger your social anxiety usually fall into three main categories, okay? So three main categories when we're talking about what actually triggers your social anxiety. So I wanna run through those real quick. Um, I don't want this to, <laughs> to totally dominate, but I do want to just kind of review this real quick as a backdrop. So the first area is going to be social triggers. So these are going to be things like initiating conversations, like walking up to someone, for example, and you're the person that starts the conversation or joining in on a group conversation that's already going on when you enter a room, for example, or speaking up in a conversation, networking, uh, sort of the things that we think about when we think about social anxiety, asking someone on a date, making a joke, talking about yourself, those fall into the social fears category, okay? Then we also have a category of triggers that are um, around being observed in some way, having other people watch you or notice you or be aware of you. So some examples in this category would be like using public restrooms, right? That's something that a lot of people who have social anxiety struggle with, or um, just walking around in stores, walking down the sidewalk, talking on the phone in public, um, having people hear you while you're working, like if some of you work in like co-working spaces where it's like an, an open space and you're working and other people are hearing you, sometimes that can trigger anxiety. Um, writing in front of other people, going to the gym, swimming, any of those things where other people are around and you feel anxious about their presence and the possibility of them observing you and judging you, okay? So we had our social fears, these are fears about being observed. And then the final category uh, is going to be performance situations. So these are going to be things like public speaking, uh, being interviewed, like a job interview, uh, taking a test is for sure a performance situation, performing on stage, playing a sport. And then in this category is sexual activity. 
Okay. So this is where the sexual activity comes into play. I mean, and it's also interpersonal. So it, there's definitely a component in those other categories, but it's largely thought of as like a performance situation. Okay. So, um, so I wanted, I wanted to kind of have that as a backdrop. I also, a couple other comments about this is, um, this is an area like a lot of areas with mental health where we really, really, really need more research. Like it really is a little bit sad uh, when you go to really research this topic that there isn't more. Um, and the research that has been done has definitely been more focused on men than women. So if you're a lady on this call, ladies, we got a long way to go. <laughs> People just don't get us. There's a lot to be learned here. But um, so, so I want to make those two comments too. And then when you add to all of that, the fact that sex is really still very taboo in our culture. Like in some ways, not so much, but in other ways it really is. Um, like it's not something that people, it's a normal part of human behavior, but it's, there's really still too much silence around it. Um, and that can be harmful, right? It can mean that, for example, people aren't going to the doctor to talk about problems that they're having in this area. And they're experiencing a lot of heartache and struggle because of it. Um, so kind of like what I was talking about earlier, lots of people enter sexual encounters with anxiety, right? And then for people with social anxiety, uh, my people, <laughs> anxiety around intimacy and sex can be really magnified, okay? So I want to um, kind of continue on and talk about this in three sections. So I want to make a couple comments about the prevalence of sexual problems and how they manifest. And I want to make a couple comments about what we know about what causes specific sexual problems. And then thirdly, I want to make a couple comments about treatment for these issues. Okay, so um, a couple notes about the prevalence piece and just, just how it manifests. Um, so several studies find that when we're talking about male sexual dysfunction, that erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation are the most commonly reported male sexual problems when we're looking at social anxiety populations. And then for women or females, um, oftentimes what's reported is that sexual pain and struggle to orgasm with a partner in the room are more prevalent, uh, more so than performance concerns. Uh, and side note, this is one of those areas where I'd love to have more research available because while I can definitely see how men might have more performance issues, I do definitely wonder if women's concerns about performance um, have been underestimated. So that's just a side note. But, but for what we have now, that's typically sort of the conclusion is that women's concerns tend to be more about pain and struggle to orgasm and that men's uh, issues tend to be more centered on the performance pieces, so to speak. So erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation. Okay, so a couple other notes here. Um, because social anxiety often decreases overall confidence, right, and can leave you feeling really vulnerable to judgment, another way that it can manifest in intimate situations is that it can decrease the likelihood that you speak up for yourself during intimacy and sexual encounters. So that can mean, you know, asking your partner to put on a condom or voicing your preferences, like really communicating with your partner about what you like or what you dislike. Um, and so while that communication piece is not a disorder per se, it is definitely another important way that anxiety can impact intimacy 
and sexual encounters. Um, and then, so another thing I wanna say is remember at the beginning what I said about the component of shame and how it results from these perfectionistic standards and feelings of deficiency. People with social anxiety often have ideas about what's considered normal when it comes to sex and ideas about what everyone else is doing, right? Like this is how it's supposed to be, or this is what people do when they're having sex or when they're in intimate encounters. And so there's this pressure to perform and behave in a way that's consistent with whatever that standard is in your head, right? So going back to these perfectionistic standards um, and whether that's aligned with reality or not, we can see, given what I talked about earlier about uh, standards and these feelings of shame, how this can really set you up to um, have some negative emotions around it. Um, and so some of the top fears that people have during sex are one, I'll just mention three that are really prevalent. One fear is that your partner will find your naked body unattractive or two, that you are just bad at sex, right? Just feeling like you're inadequate in some way or not good at it. And then three, that your partner won't have an orgasm or be satisfied, sexually satisfied. Okay. So top fears, one, that your partner will find your naked body unattractive, two, that you're bad at sex, or three, that your partner won't be satisfied. Um, so if you're having those fears, right, and you're feeling like your performance might not be adequate, not only uh, might you end a sexual encounter with feeling or endure a sexual encounter with feelings of embarrassment and shame, there's that shame word again, but then the relationship itself, right, people are fearing that the relationship itself might be in jeopardy as a result of their experiences, okay, so there's all these fears going around, these thoughts and these fears uh, going around during sexual encounters, Again, for people at large to some extent, but in a much more magnified way if you struggle with social anxiety. Okay, so those are some notes about how it manifests in intimate situations. Let's talk for a minute about why the problems with sexual performance occur. Okay, so I'm just gonna take a quick breather. So we talked about how it manifests. Let's talk about why. And this section is just slightly more dense. So hang with me. Um, so for men, if we think about the physiological aspects of the sexual response, so we have like erection, lubrication, orgasm, ejaculation, erection, lubrication, orgasm, ejaculation. All of those four responses involve what's known as the autonomic nervous system autonomic nervous system. And basically, just to keep it simple, these are the systems that are largely under voluntary control. So things that you can control voluntarily. And so if an individual can definitely, can maybe take steps to increase the likelihood of some of these uh, voluntary um, processes, for the most part, they are not fully controlled on a voluntary basis, right? Erection, lubrication, orgasm, ejaculation. These are not things that are fully controlled or that you can will your will to happen, right? Um, so kind of what you might expect, research shows that a high level of anxiety and stress can really interfere with the erectile process because anxiety 
typically causes you to kind of go into this fight or flight mode where you're like preparing for an enemy, you're sweating, your pupils are dilating, right? A lot of you have probably had that in science class, the whole fight or flight response. You're preparing to fight. So that's what anxiety causes you to do. But the process of erection actually requires your parasympathetic system to be dominant, which is a more, have a more calming effect on your body. So we can see already that if these two things are at odds, there's sort of, it sort of lays the groundwork for a problem, right? You're in a sexual encounter and you really need to be more relaxed so that this whole process of erection, lubrication, orgasm, ejaculation can flow in a more relaxed state. And not like completely like laying on the beach relaxed. That's not really what I'm referring to, but you need more of a parasympathetic response to lead the way. And instead, if you're anxious, it's really your sympathetic nervous system that's dominant at that point. Okay. So we have that going on on a physiological basis when we're talking about the men. And I'm definitely going to get to uh, females in just a moment. Uh, we have that going on. And then in addition to that, there's other factors like elevated stress hormones that are being emitted in your body that also diminish the erectile response. Okay. So physiologically, there's the setup for things to maybe not go in an ideal way or in a, in a way that would lead to more satisfaction, I'll say, when it comes to a sexual encounter. So for women, unfortunately, the relationship of exactly how this plays out is less clear. Um, but what's primarily believed at this point is that anxiety, similar to what I was saying with the men, how it interferes with all phases of the sexual response, it's believed that the same applies here, that anxiety really interferes with all phases of the sexual response. So from the feelings of desire, feelings of arousal, including lubrication and orgasm, that the anxiety sort of plays a, an impeding role when it comes to the body's ability to sort of go through that process uh, in a more natural or smooth way, if you will. Okay, so, but we need more research to figure out exactly what that looks like for women. But what we do know is that anxiety really serves as a distraction from erotic cues, okay? That's how they write about it in the, the literature. So let me tell you what that means, a distractor from erotic cues. What it means is, in real language, is that when you're involved in a sexual encounter, instead of being able to be in the moment and connected with your partner and really tuned into those cues from your partner that would allow you to sort of go on this path from desire, arousal, lubrication, orgasm, you're focused on yourself and you're in your head about your own worries. And so if you're self-focused in the moment, it really takes away from your body's ability to be aroused and to then experience the orgasm, to go through that whole process. Okay, so Sadie says, this is helpful taking time some notes. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I hope it's helpful. And gosh, there's so much on this, like literally you could do a whole like course on this, but um, we won't do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, this, there's just so much and there's so much more to be learned. Um, so, but anyhow, so, okay, so let's just pause for a quick second. So if we see anxiety as having the potential of disrupting sexual performance, um, we can see how this makes it more likely that a person experiences that shame that we've been talking about, those feelings of embarrassment and those feelings of being a failure, right? And so 
if you leave a sexual encounter with those feelings, shame, embarrassment, and feeling like a failure, it's not hard to see how your, what we call anticipatory anxiety, right? That's the anxiety that you have before a difficult situation. We can see how your anticipatory anxiety about the next time that you're in a sexual encounter would be pretty significant, right? Like if things don't go well, then you're anxious about the next time that you're in that situation or worse, you go into a pattern of avoidance, which is like the enemy when you have social anxiety, right? You're completely avoiding sexual encounters or you're avoiding even getting in relationships, right? You're not even putting yourself in a situation to even potentially have a sexual encounter. You're not dating, you're not, um, or maybe you are in a long-term relationship, you're married or you have a long-term partner um, and you just avoid sex. And we know that that could, could cause relationship problems. So we can think about all the ways that this can become a vicious cycle. Um, and one other way that this can become a problem is that maybe people don't completely avoid sexual encounters or avoid relationships, but maybe what happens is when they're in a sexual encounter, they try to pursue erection for, for males or they try to pursue orgasm for females. So what I mean by that is, they, is that they go into sexual encounters really focused on that, like, okay, got to get an erection, got to have an orgasm. And so you can imagine that if you're focusing on that rather than allowing it to recur, occur uh, naturally sort of in response to sexual stimulation, that could also lead to problems, right? So I'm sorry, I thought I was hearing some other noise for a moment. Um, so again, so just all these different ways that this could be problematic. I think I saw a comment. Let me just check real quick. Um, do you think the sexual challenges and social anxiety can go so far as to mask or confuse a person's sexual identity? Absolutely. Yes. I do think that these problems can confuse a person's, uh, sense of sexual identity, just in terms of influencing their thoughts and beliefs about what they, what they truly desire. Like, because again, a lot of this is is uh, sort of founded on these fears or these issues of shame and fears about embarrassment. So I feel like there's for sure the um, uh, potential for people to be confused in that way and to not be, be totally clear about what is it that they actually desire? Um, what is it that is that they find pleasurable or pleasing? All of those things have the potential to be um, muddied for lack of a better word in a way when they have all of this going on all of these thoughts and assumptions and negative emotions around intimacy and sex so I would say for sure yes um okay so let's see it's 12 38 so we're coming up on I don't want to go too too long but let me just make a couple comments about treatment and first like I said if any other questions about that um drop them in the chat here or email me and I'm, I'm happy to do a follow-up Q&A on this um, but let's just, let me just make a couple comments about treatment. So we talked about this issue, how it can manifest. So how do people get help um, or, or get better, just get, get past this? So for, so one note about this is that um, men who deal with sexual concerns, according to research, now this is another where I'm kind of side-eyeing this, I'm not so sure. Men who encounter sexual concerns are reportedly less likely to seek help than women. 
while I can definitely see how that could be the case, um, sort of going back to those performance concerns that men tend to have. Um, so I could see that, but um, just the way my brain works, I'm, I'm just curious about um, how our sort of cultural views about women and sex how that influences uh, a woman's likelihood to go to a professional and seek help. Because I can definitely see reasons why women would be or are uh, very hesitant to do that. So, so we'll see. Some of this research is just, again, sort of compromised by the fact that people are not comfortable talking about sex, getting help for sex, even doctors. I mean, they've done studies where doctors, people who ideally would be trained to have these difficult conversations also have reservations about bringing up sex when they're working with their patients. So, um, you know, it could be your mental health provider that you're working with, but more so I'm thinking just about private, um, like your primary care physician or your family doctor. Um, like how many times does your family doctor really initiate like you know, a good conversation about it, as opposed to like something on a form where they're asking you to sort of check a box if you have issues. Um, so anyhow, just a note about that, but the research shows that, that men are less likely to seek help than women. Um, and so for treatment, one option is to engage in treatment that is focused on the sexual concerns where that is like the dominant issue. And one way that this works is actually really interesting. So if you go to a therapist, like a sex therapist, often what they will have, particularly if you go with a partner, they will have you sort of go through a process um, where uh, you initially, the goal is to sort of reduce anxiety, of course, regain confidence in sexual performance. And so if you're in an intimate relationship, they actually have you at the start of therapy, excuse me, uh, engage in a sex ban. So you might have like a week or two where the therapist will say, okay, no sex at all for, you know, for the two of you. Um, and then after sort of the groundwork is, is in place for the therapy, then they might have you go through a phase where you progress to touching each other in a non-sexual way. Um, so maybe, you know, touching your partner's body, but not like a genital area or your partner's breasts. Um, so you'll do that for a little bit. And then you will graduate to engaging in touch only, um, but being allowed to touch uh, those genital areas. And so you're kind of progressing through this process. And then ultimately, the last step is that the therapist will have you actually engage in uh, sexual intercourse, if that's what you're aiming for. But the idea is to kind of help people increase their confidence in sexual encounters um, by taking the pressure off. So right in those weeks where you know that we can't have sex, we're only supposed to touch or we're only supposed to kiss. Um, it takes the pressure off. You're not worried about if you, if you're a male, you're not worried about getting an erection. If you're a female, you're not worried about having to orgasm or being lubricated. Just all of those things, um, are taken off the table and it allows you to be in the moment, so to speak. And so you do that again in a gradual way until, um, until you feel more confident and you're able to sort of engage in the sexual encounter in a way that's more satisfying. Um, so that is one option for treatment. But again, that would be treatment that is primarily focused on addressing the sexual issues. And then a, section, a second option, of course, is to engage in therapy um, really that's more consistent with like what CBT for social anxiety would look like. So you're working on your social anxiety as a whole. And part of that is working on the fears 
around uh, sex. So you're working on that in addition to fears about other social situations. Um, and that can be very effective. So a lot of times people will go in, they have a bunch of, you know, go in to see a therapist. They have a bunch of social situations that cause anxiety and they work through them all together and they really see a lot of significant improvement in uh, the sexual concerns in the sexual encounters. So kind of two options, treatment that's mostly focused on sex issues and treatment where the sex issues are sort of just one of a number of concerns that you're addressing. Okay, so just a couple last quick comments on that. And then I'm just seeing how are we doing on time? Ooh, we're right at like the end of where I want it to be time-wise. But just one other quick note that I want to make about this um, issue is that if one thing to keep in mind, if you're listening to this and you... Um, are experiencing some anxiety or difficulty with sexual performance issues and you take medication for anxiety, that is for sure something that you would wanna to talk to your doctor about because gosh, it just gets so messy. So you get the medications for depression and anxiety. And unfortunately, one of the main side effects of those medications, uh, specifically medications known as SSRIs, one known side effect, effect, side effect excuse me, is that they can interfere with sexual performance. Um, and so if you are experiencing that and you're taking medications, definitely bring that up to the person, uh, the provider that's prescribing that uh, because that, that could be an issue for you. Okay, so I wanna mention that um, we only have like one or two minutes and I have like three more questions I wanna answer. So I'm just going to, I'm gonna, I'm just one last thing I had mentioned at the beginning that someone wrote in talking about, um, they're having a hard time really knowing if their sexual anxiety, or sexual anxiety, oh my gosh, I'm still on the sex thing. If their social anxiety is just kind of a part of their personality, or if it's really something that, um, you know, that's a problem or maybe a disorder that they want to get help, that they need to get help with. And so what I will say about that sort of circling back, kind of coming full circle to where I started is that you really, so one option is to go to a therapist to have that discussion. But really the most simple way that I can put it is that um, you just really have to get clear about where social anxiety is manifesting for you. If you think about the big three areas of life and what I consider the big three areas are your work, like whatever you do professionally or whatever you do to earn money, um, your relationships, and that includes friendships, uh, romantic relationships, just how you relate to other people, and then what I call your play, work, play, relationships. Play is going to be anything that you do that is for um, pleasure, happiness, any hobbies you have, things that you like to do outside of work. If when you look at those three areas, work, play, relationships, you can see where things aren't right. You're not happy. You're not satisfied. Um, you feel like things are not going well in those three areas. If, if social anxiety, so if fears about people judging you and feelings of shame, because you feel like you're not, you're deficient in some way, you're not living up to those perfectionistic standards that I talked about at the beginning. If those two things are really the biggest reason why things are not right when it comes to your work your play and your relationships, then for me, that's where I would say social anxiety is a problem that needs your attention. It's not just, you know, that you're a part of your personality that maybe is not your favorite part, but you're still a pretty satisfied person and life is pretty good. 
if, if, if those two things are making it such that those three areas are not where you'd like them to be, then I would say um, that's your sign to seek help. And help, again, can look like a professional or a book that you read. Um, it can manifest in a lot of different ways. There, there are multiple ways to get better, but I would say pay attention to it for sure. All right, guys, it's 1247. I do not want to go too long. Um, so I'm going to stop here. But again, I just want to say to the people who are on the call, like, seriously, I appreciate you. I've been at home with my kids for these months and like working, but not working and sort of in this, this space. That's about all I can say. Um, and so literally I emailed you guys this week for the first time in a, a couple months. Um, and I'm just kind of happy to communicate and have you on the call. So thanks for taking your time out. I hope that this was helpful. Always feel free to email me with any other questions you have, and I will for sure be in touch. Um, I think I'll send this recording out in next week's email. And then I have plans for a couple other things in the pipeline uh, that I'll be communicating uh, with you about via email. So thanks for your time. I appreciate you and I will see you in your inbox. Okay, I'm back. It's Sadie. I hope you enjoyed the wealth of information that Dr. Franks shared and that you could feel the compassion that she clearly has for people who experience social anxiety. I respect her work a lot and it's an honor to be able to share it. I'm committed to bringing you as much helpful content and support as I can. And having the opportunity to share this talk with you is really exciting for me because I can bring you one side of the experience my side, um, you know, as someone who's been through therapy, who is on the journey, who has learned a lot and likes to nerd out, but I can't bring you the social anxiety expert perspective that people like Dr. Franks and Dr. Hendrickson, who was a few episodes back, um, the, the perspective that they have and the knowledge that they have. And I think it's very, very important that we approach social anxiety recovery or management um, as comprehensively as we can, because different things will resonate with different people. So I would love to hear from you if you enjoyed this episode, and please feel free to let me know what you'd like to hear from me in future episodes. I get really inspired and motivated by your questions and suggestions. So you can email me at sadie at yoursocialanxietybestie.com or find me on Instagram at yoursocialanxietybestie. So thank you for listening. Big, big thank you to Dr. Franks. And I'll catch you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, and I hope you found it helpful. Anxiety thrives on avoidance, and we can take back our power by just showing up like you did today. Remember that you are probably underestimating how strong and wonderful you are, and you're probably overestimating how perfect and put together other people are. So show up scared. Show up imperfect. Just show up. And while you're at it, come find me on Instagram at your social anxiety bestie so we can be awkward together. <laughs>